don't change what they mean. They change how they feel to us. And I think authority is a word that's changed a lot, particularly in the last two, three, four years, maybe over the last 10, 20 years as well. Probably still means the same thing. It means being in charge. But, but now it's, it's a bad thing, by and large. You, you hear authority and you worry. You, you, you fear its misuse. And, and I think the way our culture feels about the word authority, or came in loud then for a moment, I think that, that can colour how we think of authority when we come to the Bible. And you'll have noticed, um, as we read in verse 6 and verse 8, I'd say authority is, is at the heart of this passage. Uh, in verse 6, Jesus says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then verse 8, they praised God, who had given such authority to man. And in fact, I think authority is a bit of a theme of this whole section. Uh, If you were here recently, I think Johnny actually preached on um, the end of Matthew 7 and and the beginning of Matthew 8. Um, Matthew 5 to 7, we see Jesus teach with authority famously called the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus act with authority. We see him heal a leper. We see him heal a centurion's servant. We see him heal Peter's mother-in-law, heal many, cast out demons, uh, calm a storm, uh, and heal demon-possessed men. Um, So authority lies at the heart of what we see of Jesus uh, in these two chapters. Um, but that, that's kind of where we get to, verse 6, verse 8, near the end of the passage. And it, it's not where we begin. Uh, so, so we'll look at these eight verses um, in three sections this morning. Uh, verses 1 and 2, then verses 3 to 7, and then verse 8. Um, and we begin at, at the intimate, the personal level, with an interaction between just a few men. We're, we're probably familiar with this account from, from the other Gospels, from Mark, from Luke. Uh, Notice that Matthew doesn't even mention the crowds until right at the end, at verse 8. And we begin with just Jesus, this paralysed man, and his friends. Uh, And we see in those first two verses that we can take heart in Jesus, who forgives our sins. We can take heart in Jesus, who forgives our sins. So the story begins with a man. A man whose life had been filled with hardship, for he was a paralytic, verse 2, but not paralysed in a country with a national health service, or in one which had any respect, or gave many rights to disabled people. No, he was paralysed in first century Judea, and he was probably pretty lucky to have these friends who loved him enough to look after him and bring him to Jesus, as they do here. And we don't know a lot about him. Was he paralysed from the hips down, from the neck down? We don't know. What terrible accident or crippling disease he'd endured, we're not told. What his life had looked like for the last who knows how long, we dread to think. Matthew focuses not so much upon his suffering as upon his simple need. And perhaps you've known suffering, something like this. So with little regard for what's going on around, these men come and they dump their friend at Jesus' feet. And not a word needs to be said. It's obvious to Jesus as he surveyed this man, as he looked at these exhausted friends, what they needed. They didn't even need to ask. 
they've come in trust, in the desperate hope that Jesus could do the impossible, that he could work a miracle. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And what a beautiful sentence that is. Jesus sees this man and he is filled with compassion. His heart reaches out to him. Notice how tenderly and gently he speaks to him. He doesn't just say the necessary words to get the job done so he can move on to the next miracle, the next bit of teaching. No. Take heart, he says, my son. Chin up. Hang in there, kiddo. Why? Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. It's okay, little guy. Your sins aren't a problem now. They're dealt with. They can't trouble you anymore. What a beautiful sentence that is. But hang on a minute. Has Jesus forgotten his lines? Does Jesus not know what he's supposed to say in this situation? Well, this is awkward. Because I don't think we're expecting Jesus to say this to this man. At least we wouldn't if we didn't already know the story, if we were reading Matthew 8 and 9 for the first time. For surely we would expect words of healing here. Surely this is what this man and his friends have come to Jesus for. Surely healing is what the watching crowd are waiting to see. For healing is what Jesus has shown he's in the business of doing. We've seen it time and again through chapter 8 with the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, all the people who were brought to Jesus in the town. Surely words of healing are what we expect in verse 2, not words of forgiveness. It seems that Jesus has somewhat missed the mark. And forgiving sin? Well, that's a whole different ballgame. In fact, sin hasn't really come up for a while in Matthew's Gospel. It hasn't been explicitly mentioned since Jesus' teaching on forgiveness back in chapter 6. So, although it might be familiar to many of us who've read the story before, these words of Jesus perhaps aren't quite what those there would have been expecting. Maybe words of forgiveness might have been felt to be a bit of a disappointment. Jesus doesn't seem to have and dealt with the presenting problem. This man can't walk, maybe even can't move his arms, his upper body. An extraordinary, life-transforming, never-be-the-same-again, miraculous healing. Surely that's what we're after, what this man and his friends are after. But sin's forgiven? Well, maybe we feel a sense of anticlimax, perhaps even disappointment. An opportunity to really bless this man has been missed. Well, perhaps Jesus is saying that there's something better, something deeper that he can do for this man than heal his body. Yes, healing his body would be wonderful. It would be life-transforming. But healing his soul, well, that would be eternity-transforming. That would change everything, forever for this man.
and isn't having a new heart worth so much more than having a working body amazing as a working body would have been it's like the child in the shop and desperate to be bought an action figure from the latest film and the parent says no knowing that they already have a full set of all the characters in the cupboard wrapped and ready for the child's birthday having his body healed yes that would be wonderful but having his soul healed well it doesn't bear comparing it's so much better And, um, and as I say this, knowing that, that many of the room may well have experienced great suffering, but I wonder whether we sometimes get this wrong too. We think, we feel, we act, we speak as if the greatest thing God could do for us would be to give us a good night's sleep, a break from the kids, a proper holiday, a body free from pain, an easy time at work. We see the problem that's right there in front of us. And we don't see around it, beyond it, above or past it. it. It takes over our vision. And of course, we know that God loves to give us good things and bless us in practical, immediate, material ways. He's not just interested in the spiritual and the abstract. But, but he has something so much better to give us. Something so much better he's already given us. If we're followers of Jesus. And that is forgiveness of sins. I come to God telling him I don't know how I'm going to get through the next night, the next day, the next week, the next year. And he looks me in the eye and tells me that I've already sorted out eternity for you. But to be fair to us, the Western British culture we live in doesn't do us any favours when it comes to appreciating God's gift of forgiveness. Because the culture we live in, it doesn't really know what to do with sin. So it pretends it doesn't exist. Sin is reduced to guilty pleasures, or the classic vices, um, drink, drugs, sex, or it's just a bit of a joke. Our culture says, oh, don't worry about sin. It's not really a thing. And no, no one worries about that stuff anymore. Just give yourself a break and get on with life. Okay, that's one solution. That's one way to deal with the problem of sin. But wouldn't you like a better one? Wouldn't you like someone to say to you, take heart, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Not ignored, not pretended they're of no significance, not denied as if they don't even exist, but forgiven, dealt with, because Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for them. Our lives may and will be full of strife, struggles and difficulties, suffering and hardship that's truly awful. But our biggest problem is dealt with. Our ultimate issue is sorted. Our sin is gone. And so we can take comfort. We can take heart. If we're Christians, but God says to us, take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. And if you're not a Christian this afternoon, wouldn't you rather have your sins forgiven than be told that you need to pretend that they're not there? So we've seen in verses 1 and 2, we can take heart in Jesus, who forgives our sins. 
Our second point, from verses 3 to 7, that we can know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive our sins. We can know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive our sins. The uh, wonderful words of Jesus in verse 2 to this paralysed man are met with a less than enthusiastic response from uh, some of those looking on. Verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. There's a group of religious teachers watching, men who know their Bibles from start to finish. And this statement of Jesus's sets off huge warning signals for them. Forgiving sins? Well, that, that's a big deal. That, that's a God thing to be doing. Along with creating the world, sustaining it, ruling, reigning, judging. And didn't God say, through the great prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. That's not a royal we. That's not for whoever takes it upon themselves, whoever feels moved in the moment to show compassion. I will forgive their iniquity, said God. Does Jesus have any idea what he's saying? Does he not realise that to claim to be able to do what God alone does is to make yourself equal with God. God alone can forgive sins, just as a magistrate, a jury, a judge alone determine the outcome in a criminal court case. They decide whether the defendant goes free. It would be impertinent for a police officer, a lawyer, a victim, a family member to try to step in and make that decision. God alone gets to decide where the sins can be forgiven. But even more so, because not only is God the judge, he's also the one who's ultimately been sinned against. For someone else to claim to forgive is to claim that they are the one who's been sinned against. Just as no one else can forgive the unfaithful husband who returns to his wife and asks for her to take him back, it's her prerogative and hers alone to forgive. So no one else can forgive our sin but the one it's ultimately against. The one who made us to be good, perfect, pure and in a loving relationship with him. So there's a sense in which these teachers of the law are right to take note of what Jesus is saying. To be taken aback by it is a shocking thing for him to say. But sadly their response comes not from a place of Curiosity or surprise. But verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Jesus sees not, not genuine surprise, but ill will behind their question. Whether in their body language or through reading, uh, reading their hearts, we don't know. And so he offers to prove his ability to forgive. He's going to demonstrate that he can do this. A risky move. Verse 5. Which is easier, he says, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? So he's going to do what's easier to do, reverse paralysis, but harder to say because it has to visibly happen before everyone's eyes there and then. To prove that he can do and has done what's easier to say because the evidence won't be clear until the final day but much harder to actually do, forgive the man's sins. Why such a dramatic offer of proof? 
Why not simply rebuke or dismiss these unbelieving teachers of the law and move on to where his teaching and ministry will be better received, as he at other times did? Well, as we saw at the beginning, it's that emphatic statement in verse 6. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know, says Jesus. I want you to be confident. I want you to be certain that I have the authority to do this. There's no room for doubt here. There's to be no place for uncertainty. They are to see and they are to understand that Jesus can forgive. And did you notice the um, title he uses for himself here? He calls himself the Son of Man in verse 6. It's only the second time in Matthew's Gospel that he's used that title for himself. Uh, And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you might know that it's the title Jesus most frequently used for himself. Um, John Piper suggests two reasons why. First, Jesus is emphasising his humanity. He's a human being, with human parents, a human body, a human life. And second, it's an allusion to the famous Son of Man that Daniel prophesied in chapter 7. Um, the one who, uh, let me read Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Uh, Daniel's just seen a vision of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sat upon the throne. And then Daniel writes, There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This, says Jesus, is who I am. I want you to know that I am the Son of Man, who has been given all authority on earth, just as Daniel said. My word, the stakes are high. Every eye is riveted on that stretcher, a dozen camera frames trained on the scene. And Jesus says to the paralysed man, verse 6, Get up, take your mat, and go home. No pressure. The gaze of the whole world on the mat. The seconds slow down to hours. And sure enough, a front toe shifts just a few millimetres. The toes on the other feet wiggle slightly. An ankle twists. A slight bend in the knee appears. His legs contract as he pulls his knees up. And then he lifts his head and upper body up. Lifts himself up on the ground. And he stands. Verse 7. The man got up and went home. The miracle is done. Jesus demonstrated by doing what was harder to say, but far easier to do, that he really could do what was easy to say, but impossible for anyone who was not God to do. He has forgiven this man's sin. And we can know that the Son of Man has this authority too. We might not be there to see these events with our own eyes, but we can read these eyewitness accounts and we can know that Jesus is Daniel, son of man, who has all authority on earth, authority to forgive our sins.
Uh, maybe, maybe some of us, we, we, we think our guilt can't be forgiven. It's beyond the pale. The clock can't be wound back. What we've done can't be undone. And so we carry our guilt around our neck. But Jesus has authority on that to forgive that sin. Or maybe for us, our forgiveness is wrapped up in a difficult relationship, in another person. We feel duty-bound to make it up to someone, to pay them back for what we've done, or what they say we've done. That person might even be out of reach now, they might be in the grave, or we have no contact with them anymore. And we know that we can never fully appease them and earn back that love. But Jesus tells us that he has an authority on earth to forgive our sins. Or maybe we can't forgive ourselves. We're not the sort of person that we thought we were, that you've done things, said things, felt things that you didn't think you were capable of. And you're ashamed. But Jesus has authority on earth to forgive your sins. If he has declared us innocent, no one can claim we are still guilty. And of course, he doesn't just have authority to forgive sins. That's not the only authority that the Son of Man was given in Daniel's great vision. Uh, And this scene is the climax, I would say, of what we've seen in chapter 8 so far, where Jesus is demonstrating his authority again and again over sickness and cleanness, evil spiritual forces over nature. We can know that Jesus has authority over anything and everything. Whatever enemies we're facing in our lives at the moment, or we see out there in the world, Jesus is in charge. And that is a wonderful thing. So we've seen that we can take heart in Jesus. He forgives our sins. That we can know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Our third and final point, just from verse 8. We can marvel at the man who's been given such authority. We can marvel at the man who's been given such authority. And let's dive back into the story. Um, Verse 7. The miracle was done. The man got up and walked home. And verse 8. The crowds we suddenly learned have been there watching in the background the whole time. Well, they erupt in praise. When the crowds saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God, who had given such authority to man. The small personal miracle of verse 2 has erupted onto an epic scale. Everyone has seen it. And it's a scene of of high emotion. Uh, The phrase filled with awe could be translated translated as marvelled. They marvelled. They were astonished by what Jesus had done. Uh, They had simply never seen anything or anyone like this. And so they marvelled and they glorified God. And we can marvel too. We can marvel at the one who in every sense looked like an ordinary man. The one who had no claims in his upbringing to power and prestige, no earthly beauty. The one who was from a poor neighbourhood and who for a decade earned a humble living in his stepfather's trade. And yet is our God. We can marvel what God would choose to become like one of his creatures. What God would get down off his throne and be made an infant 
what God would endure the humility of being brought up as a human child, learning to read, write, walk, eat without making a mess? What God would then bear the humiliation of being ignored, derided, accused, betrayed by his own creatures? What God would endure the scorn of dying on the cross, lie after lie spoken about him as he hung there? What God would endure that? Surely only ours. And so we can marvel at this man who has such authority. Let's pause for a few moments and then I'll lead us in a prayer.